All right. Well, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We continue to make our way to the, what I would think of as the heart of this letter. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Father, we come before your word once again asking that you would, that you would open our hearts. It is our great desire to place ourselves at your feet, to hear your word, to have our hearts searched and our paths illuminated for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. In the 1600s, a Jewish philosopher by the name of Spinoza wrote, quote, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this rather than the virtues which they profess is the readiest criteria of their faith. In other words, it is astounding and shameful that the Christian community is recognized by quarreling and animosity, which are the very opposite of what it claims are at the center of its religion. It's almost as though Spinoza was saying that Christianity certainly looks double-minded. Sadly, the same criticisms of the church are often justified today, and many of us know someone or someones who have walked away from the church, some of them have walked away from their faith because of bitter strife among people who claim loving others as our primary virtue. Now, sometimes these criticisms from the world are not fair and they're not accurate because, for one thing, confronting sin and error, which is right, which we must do as the people of God, Confronting sin and error, having disagreements over what the Bible says sometimes, are necessary times of parting ways. They should not be filled with animosity or hatred. And that might look like quarreling from the outside and is often labeled that way. 
even if that's not fair at times, accurate. Also, the world, let's admit, has a skewed vision for what love is. Love, according to our culture, is very often tolerating everybody's view and never telling anybody they're wrong. That's not the biblical definition of love. Thirdly, the world does look for reasons to discredit God's people with accusations of hypocrisy at times to justify their rejection of the gospel. And so they will cling to any fault within the church, even if the church is very open and honest about not being perfect. But these caveats, they don't change the fact that how we go about these things is often selfish and corrosive out of jealousy and animosity and that the world is justified in its criticisms even if the world is immersed in the same strife, the same quarreling and fighting. As I mentioned last time, James is building here in his letter. He's building toward a crescendo in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, where he issues a call to radical repentance. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, and now chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, stand as two steps upward toward this high peak of his letter. He's climbing. And you can see it in the increasing severity of his words. Now, in chapter 3, verse 13, he poses the question, who is wise and understanding among you? And then he contrasts these two types of wisdom, two kinds of wisdom, a wisdom that is earthly, earthbound, mannish, even demonic, and a wisdom that is from above. And we looked at that passage last time. Now, in chapter 4, verse 1, he challenges us again, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you or within you? James is talking about the church. He's talking about the Christian community, the community of faith. But our conflicts with each other start within us. They start within each of us. And despite how practical James is, we've noted this over and over again, how practical he is, how, uh, how he gives the street-level view to life, to living as a Christian. Despite how practical he is, James is not merely interested in modifying behavior. And this question, what causes quarrels and fights among you, is a scalpel opening up our lives for the heart surgery that we need. James now reveals the conflict among us. He reveals what really is going on in this strife, in this quarreling and fighting so that we will humble ourselves to receive grace. That's his goal is that we would humble ourselves to receive grace. 
And so James gives us the source of conflict, the summary of conflict, and the solution for conflict. Right? So first of all, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, the source of conflict. James follows up with another question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that causes these quarrels and these fights? That your passions are at war within you. That's word for passions is the word hedone. We get hedonism from it. Hedonist. These are desires, cravings that demand satisfaction. And they are not limited to sexual desires. I think we usually associate sexual desires with hedonism. In fact, those kinds of desires are really not in view here. These are passions for position, for prominence, for respect, for vindication, the kind of passions that make someone want to pay for offending us, a passion for safety and security. These are passions that are whatever the heart demands to make it happy. That's what James is talking about. Your passions are at war within you, or literally at war in your members. This phrase, at war, is actually a word that refers to military operations. It's a word that described the ordering of soldiers of an army to march forth and go to war, to go to battle. So get the picture here. Your passions weaponize your thinking, your feelings, your motives. They whip them up into a frenzy for you to go to battle for what you want. And this battle in the members of your being produces battles and conflict, quarrels, and fighting with others. That's what James is saying. And that's partly because everybody else has ordered their armies out to go get what they want. No wonder the world is what it is. Now, here's the source, then, of our conflict. It's passions. These desires that go unfulfilled. And he shines four spotlights into what goes on in our hearts here in verse 2. Notice that the first two move from a cause to a result. You desire and do not have, so you murder. That's the result. You want something and you can't get it, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And when James says, so you murder, it's possible that this had actually happened somewhere in in these communities of faith, these churches that were forming scattered believers, most of them Jewish again. And it's possible that 
there had been murder. But it's also possible there wasn't actually a case of this, but he's probably presenting murderer as the ultimate result of fighting. In other words, your fighting amounts to murder because that's the ultimate end of fighting. And remember that Jesus revealed that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That's Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus was saying, when you're angry with someone, there's murder going on in your heart. The second two spotlights move from a result, the reality, to the cause. So, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, but what's the cause of not having? Because you do not ask. The bottom line for your lack is that you have not gone to the right source. You have not asked God. And in asking God, entrust Him, uh, entrust your needs, your desires to Him, your situation. You see, by going and asking God, you are submitting to Him. You're trusting him. You're depending on him. To ask God is to depend on him, to, surren- to surrender the demands of your heart to his will. And then almost as though he anticipates the response, but James, what are you talking about? We have asked God. I've asked God. And God has been duplicitous. God seems to be double-minded in his response. He says, ask me, but then he doesn't give. So James continues in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Wrongly. That means with, with twisted motives. This word spend... Is the same word that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 15 to describe what the prodigal son did with his inheritance. Remember, the prodigal son goes to his dad. He asks for his, his third of the inheritance up front so he can go live his life. And he goes and he spends it or he squanders it. It's the same word. So this idea of spending it on your passions is this squandering it in a reckless hedonistic spending, whatever brings the next satisfaction. And when you come to ask God with those twisted motives, when that's really your end goal, then who is double-minded? God, because he doesn't grant what you're asking? Or is it us? Because in asking God, we really don't care about God's will, what God has said, what God has said about those desires. We're only trying to use God like a vending machine 
That if we put the right amount of money in, we can pull the lever and get what we want out of it. See, once again, it's our duplicity, it's our fractures, our double-mindedness that we reflect back on God. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We don't receive from God because our motives are duplicitous. We are enslaved to the passions. God does not honor or reward that kind of asking. Here is the source, then, of conflict. And the Bible itself is filled with records of this truth. I mentioned this last time. The first recorded episode after God sends Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden is a murder. Cain murders Abel. Why? Because Cain was envious of God's recognition and favor toward Abel. And he coveted it, he could not obtain it, so he killed his brother. What about Joseph and Joseph's brothers who would be the fathers of the tribes of Israel? They were envious of Jacob's love and favoritism for Joseph. And they couldn't take it. They couldn't stand it. They couldn't have Jacob's love and favoritism like Joseph did. And so they threw Joseph into a pit to kill him. They end up selling him into slavery. What about David? David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then schemes to cover it up once she's become pregnant calling Uriah, her husband, home from the front lines of battle, assuming that he will sleep with his wife and then can take responsibility for the pregnancy. But David can't achieve the cover-up that he needs. He covets it, but he can't obtain it, and so he does what? He kills Uriah, has him killed. What about the Pharisees? They are filled with lust and envy for prestige and honor and position among the people of Israel. And they have it. And then along comes this carpenter from Nazareth, exposing them for what they really are. And the result? All the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Matthew 27, verse 1. You see, it's, it's all over. These are just some highlights. Now consider children for a moment. When another child has the toy that the other child wants, seems silly, right? That is James 4. Verses 1 through 6 being played out in the nursery. It might be when another child tries to take the toy the first child already has. Or any time they want something and somebody tells them no. 
covet, can't obtain it. Guess what? We never outgrow it. The toys just become more subtle. They just become a little more hidden, camouflaged. They become more abstract. Not only is this the source of conflict, but not getting what we want is the source of all conflict. James is identifying the universal principle at work in all conflict. From two children fighting over a toy to nations going to war. This is the fundamental principle at the root of all arguments, brawls, wars, and conquests from the beginning of time until today. I remember many years ago when I first studied this passage and was coming to grips with what James is saying here, I thought to myself, now, is James including all quarreling? I mean, is he talking about all conflict, all strife, or is he just addressing the particular conflicts he's witnessing here in this context? Because it didn't seem to me to fit my own experience in getting angry and or arguing with someone. I thought, what do you mean I'm not getting what I want? So I decided to test it. And I decided to just be alert every time I became angry, angry toward having a conflict, whether I ended up in an argument or fighting with someone or quarreling over something or didn't actually on the outside. But every time I became angry, I decided to ask myself, okay, what is it that I want that I'm not getting? Am I going to be able to identify something? And you know what? I realized what James is saying is not only true. I knew that. I knew it was true. It is also all-encompassing. And I realized that every time I got angry toward an argument or ended up in a quarrel or argument or frustrated with somebody, when I really dug into it, I could identify something that I wanted that I wasn't getting. And I challenge you, the next time you become angry in a quarrel, or you want a quarrel, you're containing it, but you're angry, ask yourself, what is it that I want that I'm not getting? Sometimes it'll be something concrete, like a toy. Sometimes it'll be pretty obvious. I wanted that last piece of pie, and my son ate it. Other times it will be abstract. Most of the time it will probably be abstract. And by abstract, I mean something like you get home at the end of the day and suddenly a demand is placed on you and you find yourself angry and quarreling about the need to do this or do that. I've experienced that. And I've asked myself, what is it that I want that I'm not getting? I know what it is. I want to rest. I want to relax. I've been working hard all day. I just want to come in. I want to sit down for 15 minutes and not be interrupted. That's what I want. 
and I can't get it right now because this person or this situation needs my attention. Can't have what I want. It might be respect. It might be an apology you think you're owed. But what is it that you want that you can't have? And you will find, if you begin to think it through, there is always something you're wanting at that moment, and you can't obtain it. That is the source of conflict. All conflict. James also gives us then the summary of conflict, verse 4. What's it all mean? What's it amount to? You adulterous people. Guys, this is a loaded term. And it is flat out the most severe confrontation in this entire letter. Because adulterous was the word the prophets used to confront unfaithful Israel for forsaking the one true God and breaking their covenant with him to go chase after false gods. And James knows they'll get it when he says, you adulterous people. It's like Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 16, 32. Judah is an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Now, just think about this. These are Christians. These are believers. Many of them are aspiring to be teachers. They are claiming to have wisdom. They're claiming to be hearers of the word. They are claiming to follow the, the golden law of love, loving their neighbors, even though they're discriminating. To be called then by James, you adulterous people, is like a slap. All of these passions, think about this then, what James is implying. All of these passions, this envy, this quarreling amounts to what? Idolatry. It is idolatry. James takes his stand alongside the prophets of old, and he says to the church, to those in the church who harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition, who quarrel and manipulate to obtain their desires, to accomplish their agendas, you unfaithful, covenant-breaking adulterers. Whatever it is that you desire, When you go through this exercise and you say, what is it that I want that I'm not getting? Whatever that is that you desire that you can't get is your God of the moment. That is your God. And at that moment, you are bowing to it and worshiping it. And that allegiance, that love and worship James calls friendship with the world. That is friendship 
with the world. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship is from the word phileo. It's a word for love, and it speaks of a devoted, affectionate attachment to someone that is based on knowledge and familiarity. I cannot phileo love a stranger, somebody I don't know. I can phileo love someone I know I've spent time with. I have a familiarity with that person, an attachment to them, an affection for that person. The kind of love that we have for people we don't know, for anybody, for enemies, that's agape love. This kind of love is an attachment, an affectionate attachment. It's used in John chapter 5, verse 20 to describe the love that God the Father has for God the Son. A devoted attachment, a friendship with the world is to draw a line in the sand and make yourself God's enemy. Whether that's your intention or not, it is to do so. Now, James here, when he talks about friendship with the world, isn't talking about having relationships with unbelievers in the world. Nor do I think James is confronting a deliberate decision to walk away from God, to forsake God, and consciously say, forget it, I'm going to pursue the world instead. And what James is saying is that by discriminating against each other in the assembly, by cursing others with our tongues while we also bless God, by harboring bitter envy and selfish ambition in our hearts and claim that we are wise, doing all of this to obtain our desires that we actually ally ourselves with the world and chase after its gods. So friendship with the world, then, is not caving to the world's pressures. It's not denying God and walking away and being an atheist. That's not what James is identifying as friendship with the world. Friendship with the world is the idolatry of self-gratification and quarreling with others to get it. That's friendship with the world. James is making sure that we see this compromising way of life, this double-minded behavior for what it really is, and he is making sure that we understand that we cannot keep a foot in each realm. We cannot keep a foot in each system. We cannot be friends with the world and friends with God. That is impossible. To do so is to claim to be God's faithful people, but play the adulterer. Like I said, this is, this is probably the harshest, the most confrontational James is in the whole letter. But he does not leave us with just a rebuke. He provides us with a solution. He provides us with a solution. Verse 5. James asks another question that makes a statement. 
Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? All right. Verse 5 is notoriously difficult. It is notoriously one of the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament. So what it means is debated a lot. As it reads in the ESV, the version I'm using, and most of you, I think, are probably carrying, it would mean something like this. The scriptures say, quote, God is jealously, zealously desiring the faithful loyalty of his people in whom his spirit dwells. The spirit of God dwells in his people and in each of us as individuals. And when we ally ourselves with the world, God is jealous or zealous for our faithfulness. Now, it, it could be that. It's hard. We can't be dogmatic about this, okay? But there are two big problems with understanding it that way. Number one is that this word jealously, nowhere else in all of the New Testament is associated with God or the Holy Spirit. Secondly, if this is a quote which is what it looks like, and the ESV even puts quotes around it, most English versions do, it is a quote that can't be found in the Old Testament. So where is James trying to quote from? The scriptures here is the phrase, the writings. Is he talking about the Old Testament? Is he talking about some other writings outside of the Old Testament? I believe he is talking about the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. That would be consistent with what James says throughout the letter. So without getting into all the technical grammar and punctuation, okay, which is what's at stake in all of this, let me just read for you how I've become convinced it makes the most sense. It should read like this. Do you suppose the scriptures speak with no purpose? The spirit he has made dwell within us yearns jealously. So these are actually, I think, two sentences. The first is a question declaring that the scriptures speak to our situation with purpose, with meaning. They point the way. They hold the answer to our dilemma. They have the remedy to our friendship with the world. The, script, the scriptures don't speak without purpose and meaning. The second is a statement then, I think. It could be a question, but I think it's a statement highlighting that our inner beings, our spirit, created by God, corrupted by sin, when left to its own power, yearns with jealousy. It operates according to jealous desires. So this isn't quoting the Old Testament, but it is what the scriptures teach and show to be true. This is what scriptures speak to. They speak with purpose and meaning. I think then the solution provided in the next verse, verse 6, confirms this. It makes sense in terms of a flow of argument. But he gives more grace. 
So, in other words, the scriptures show, they speak with purpose and meaning, and they show that our spirits yearn jealously, but God gives more grace. God knows the frailties of our hearts, and he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That is a quote from Proverbs 3, verse 34. So in other words, when James says, do you, do you suppose the scriptures speak with no purpose? They do. Therefore, it says, he's, he's looking forward to the quote in verse 6. So the meaning then would be the scriptures don't speak in vain, and here's the solution to the conflict caused by our passions. And that is grace. Grace. Now, we mostly think of grace as God's undeserved favor in redeeming us, in converting us, making us his children, making us Christians. And we know that grace is free in that we cannot earn it, we can't merit God's grace. To do so would, to be, to, would be to give us grounds for claiming some achievement in attaining God's grace. But grace, because it is free and it is God's initiative, God gets all the glory. There's no claim for us. That's why Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. Don't put any confidence in their, uh, in their achievements winning or meriting God's grace. But God's grace... On the whole, broadly speaking, is God's perfect provision for our lack, for our inability. That includes our redemption. That includes becoming a Christian because in our sin and in our spiritual darkness and blindness, we are completely incapable of saving ourselves. We're completely incapable of choosing God without his grace without him initiating, enabling us to see, giving us new life. We're incapable of that, so it's grace. When James says he gives more grace, he is saying that God provides for us the forgiveness that we need in being people given to conflict, the forgiveness that we need and the power we lack to remain faithful to him and not live enslaved to the passions that make us enemies of God, friends with the world, at enmity with God, cause us to quarrel and to fight with each other. He gives us the grace to worship him and not ourselves, to trust him, with joy, even when we don't get what we want, to submit those things to him. Grace empowers us to forsake our desires 
and to love others. But there's a condition. God gives grace to the humble. To the humble. Friendship with the world is idolatry, and at the root of idolatry, we just keep digging deeper here, the root of idolatry is pride. Self-worship. It's pride. And pride is enmity with God. And pride receives opposition from God. God gives grace to the humble. We have to humble ourselves. We have to humble ourselves. You can't claim self-sufficiency and humble yourself to receive grace. You can't do both. And the more we defend ourselves about our right to quarrel or to fight, the more opposition we set ourselves up for. James is saying, there is an answer, there is a remedy, and it is God's grace. And to receive that grace, to know that grace, to know that provision and that supply, we must humble ourselves. That begins with confession. That begins with letting the scriptures, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, lay our hearts open and go, oh, that's what's going on. That's why I'm in conflict here and here and here and here. That's why these things are so dominating. And isn't it amazing? I know it's kind of a sidetrack here. But there is no other book in existence that does what this book does. There is no other book that exposes the human condition and makes it make sense like the Bible does. In the span of six verses, James has explained the source, the summary, and the solution to conflict from the beginning of time until today and until Christ returns. Universally. The question is, are we ready to humble ourselves? The next passage, as I've said, is really the high peak of the letter, and it's in verses 7 through 10 that James is going to give us almost a step-by-step process what we must do, what it means to humble ourselves before God. Let's pray. Lord, we all stand under the searching gaze of your word, which divides soul from spirit, which divides bone from marrow. Lord, which exposes even the darkest corners of our hearts. We need your help to see them, Lord, to bring them out, to confess them, and to receive grace. Lord, James ends even this rebuke with the answer, the remedy, the hope 
the only hope that we have, and that is your grace. Not only the forgiveness for how we have acted in this gross idolatry, but Lord, the the power and provision to lay aside the passions that make war within us, to lay them aside and walk the path of a disciple in sacrificing lovingly for others. Lord, for being faithful. Lord, we want to be counted by you as friends of God. We are your people. We desperately need your grace. And together we ask for that grace and seek it, knowing that you are not double-minded in providing it. Lord, that we ask that you would help us to not be double-minded in asking for it. In your name we ask and pray all of these things. Amen.